Well, some of you may recall, or perhaps many of you will recall, that a couple months ago, we, I polled the congregation. I, I sent out an epistle and I said, hey, what would you like to hear about? What, what books of the Bible would you like me to go through? And the hands down top two requests were to either finish Genesis, because as many of you know, we, I started a series and I got to the end of chapter 11. So many of you wanted me to go back and finish it. And, and don't get me wrong, we're, we're going to do that, Lord willing. Uh, I desire to finish Genesis because I want to preach Exodus. Exodus is such an important book and I can't preach Exodus until I get Genesis out of the way. Uh, but then the second big request was a gospel. And I took it to the session, and, and they said, you know, it's been many, many years since a gospel, of one of the four gospels, was, was preached in its entirety here at this church. And so I thought it was fortuitous that here today is the first Sunday of Advent, and starting today, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to proceed until we're done. But the early years, the birth narrative and the, the early years of Jesus will, will take place, will be covered during Advent. So it all fits together providentially. And so for that, I am exceptionally grateful. <clears throat> I'm excited about this book. I'm excited about the Gospels in general, but Matthew in particular is, uh, is, is just a gem, and we'll go more into why in just a moment. But for now, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We will be reading through the end of verse 17. Matthew, converted tax collector, turned apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, 
and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to, Bab of, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, for even this genealogy. And we ask that as we commence our study, that we would indeed as true disciples sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, our time is short. Whenever I am elder of the day, it just takes longer. And I apologize for that. This is an introductory sermon, okay? So I'm going to go over lots of the details that will sort of shape and frame our study. So numerous factoids, if you will, but I want to have a, a central thrust and, uh, and that central thrust is, is really why the uniqueness of Matthew matters to us, okay? Uh, there are four Gospels in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four Gospels that the Christian church has always agreed upon, and Matthew has always been listed first. It's not alphabetical. Mark is before Matthew alphabetically. It's not in terms of age. For most agree that Mark was almost certainly earliest. So, so what then is the reason why from antiquity, Matthew has consistently been listed first? Well, it's, it's because it is so Jewish. Stylistically and thematically, Matthew is the closest to the Old Testament. So in a very real sense, because of its closeness stylistically and thematically, it provides essentially the hinge the hinge from which there's a transition from the old covenant to the new. It's the, it's the closest to the old covenant. Therefore, it's closest to the old covenant in our Bibles. It is considered to be the gospel to the Jews. 
The gospel to the Jews. That brings up a few questions. One, what exactly do we mean by a gospel? That is to say, how is, how is referring to a gospel like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, how, what's the difference or distinction between a gospel and the thing we call the gospel? Okay? So, good question. Fair question. A gospel is one of the four written records, written accounts of the words and deeds of Christ that were written so as to convince people to believe in him and having believed in him to grow in their confidence, love, loyalty, and obedience to Jesus. They're written accounts of the words and deeds of Christ for a purpose. The purpose is eliciting belief and growth in faith. Understand right now that one of the huge stumbling, stumbling blocks we face is how our culture has conditioned us to think in terms of historical biography. There are matters that the earliest Christians were well aware of that were not an issue or a problem for them simply because being closer in terms of culture and worldview to the first century author, they understood what they were saying. So, for example, in modern historiography, if you're going to write a biography of someone, you, you do something like, I don't know, David McCullough did with Truman. You, you, you talk about and, and you begin perhaps with, with relevant information about their ancestors that gets to why and where and how they were positioned, but then you begin with their birth, and then it's basically an accounting of like every day, everything that transpires in chronological order, and that, that's how you write a biography. But none, none of the ancient biographies were even remotely like that because the ancient world wasn't considered, they weren't concerned with random factoids about someone's birthplace or date or whatever. Ancient biographies had a purpose. They wanted you to care about why they were caring to remember the person. And that means you focus on the highlights. So a gospel is one of the four written accounts of the words and deeds of Christ by a specific author, in this case Matthew, that is written to elicit belief from non-believers and then for, in the case of believers, to help them grow in their faith. Understand that each gospel writer had that purpose in mind, had a purpose in mind, and that purpose informs the material they selected from the life of Christ. It's why Mark and John don't even talk about his birth. It's why they spend all four of the Gospels, spend the preponderance of their time in the final week of Jesus' life. Indeed, John spends the huge bulk of its time in the last night of Jesus' life. 
understand material was selected that fit the purpose of the author. That is important to understand. It's important to note, though, that selecting material from the, from the repository of words and deeds, Jesus said, is different than making something up. Okay? For our purposes as 21st century readers, understand that what we're saying is they selected events to include, but all these events happened. We're not saying that they made up a story so that they could make a point, okay? They actually happened. Jesus said and did what is written of him. But which information one gospel writer mentions, which information another gospel doesn't include, that's because they were making different points. All right, so that's what a gospel is, and what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has said and done applied to us, namely, that there is salvation in Christ for every person. The gospel is the good news that God forgives sinners because of Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus, if you repent of your sins and turn to Christ in faith, hope, and love, you will have eternal life. That's the good news. And it's based upon the stuff that takes place in the Gospels. So, the Gospels were written each of the four with a different point. And this explains a number of things, not the least of which, since we're in Matthew 1, 1 to 17, the differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's, which we will talk about in a minute, because that is a huge stumbling block for modern readers because the names don't add up. I mean, Joseph's dad, you know, Joseph, Jesus' dad, his, Joseph's dad, so Jesus' grandpa. It's a different name. Not an issue for earlier readers, but for us, that's like, oh, it's contradictory. We'll explain why it shouldn't be an issue. Okay, so the gospel of the Jew, to the Jews, that's Matthew. So what is a gospel? We've explained that. But the Jews, what's, why is it so Jewish? What's the point of its Jewishness? I mean, it's, it's written by a Jew, okay. Well, so was Mark. So was John. But, but they're not Gospels to the Jews. What, what do we mean? Well, Matthew, or I'm sorry, uh, Matthew wrote this as a interested party because he wants, as a Jewish person, as, the, as an apostle writing this particular gospel, he wants Jewish people to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's his goal, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Messiah, don't, don't Greekize it, don't Hellenize it and just think Christ. No, there's so much political import wrapped up in the concept of Messiah. The Messiah is the Davidic ruler who will liberate 
free and save and in every sense of the word save, not just from our sins. We, 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 we Gnosticize things sometimes as, as if it's just this ethereal thing. No, for, for the Messiah would come and liberate his people from, from oppression, liberate them from sin, oppress, uh, uh, suppress wickedness, mobilize righteousness, and it would be a golden age. That's the anticipation and expectation. And so Jesus is the Messiah, is Matthew's claim. And to bolster that claim, it's thematically very, very Jewish. So for instance, the Hebrew scriptures permeate Matthew. If you consider the other three gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, combined between those three, there are a total of 65 quotations from the Old Testament. So about 20 per book. In Matthew alone, there are 55 direct quotations and over 80 allusions. You know what I'm talking about when you allude to something? You, you don't, that's when you don't actually say it, but, but, you're, but you're drawing reference to it so that people with shared insight and knowledge know exactly what they're talking about. It happens in marriages all the time where you come over and you say, oh, that spoon, and you know what they're talking about. You didn't even have to mention the event. Just say the spoon, and people know. Okay? That's an illusion. So virtually every theological emphasis in Matthew is reinforced with Old Testament support. That's how pervasive it is. It's because he's burdened to establish that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, the anointed one who will save God's people. Now stylistically, it's very Jewish. And we, what I mean by that is Matthew utilizes a very Hebrew, Jewish way of thinking and writing. Uh, he, in, in a, it raises eyebrows because he actually adopts an accepted Jewish form of hermeneutic that, that we find spurious from our vantage point, but it was accepted as, by Jews as a legitimate hermeneutic. And he employs that in his gospel. And we'll see that. We're going to talk about that when we get there. He uses Hebrew literary devices. Uh, so we're going to talk about those too when we come. But today, two such Hebrew literary devices are in this, this uh, genealogy. First is, it's a very Jewish way of doing genealogy. You know, this, this person's the father of so-and-so. This person's the father of 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 the father of. That's a very Jewish way of doing it. Compare that to Luke in chapter 3. If you go to Luke chapter 3 in your English Bible, it'll keep saying son of, you know, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, so-and-so, the son of. Well, guess what? That son of is because the Greek way of doing genealogy is so hard to understand that we put the word son in there. It's just of so-and-so. So-and-so, of so-and-so, of so-and-so, of so-and-so, of so-and-so, of so-and-so. That's a Greek way of doing a genealogy. That is not the Hebrew way of doing genealogy. So if you look back at the Old Covenant, it was very much like the way Matthew does it here. 
father of, father of, father of. But the second literary device is he makes use of gematria. What is that? Okay, it's a, it's a cryptograph where letters of the alphabet are assigned numerical value so that when you take a number, if the reader is aware, they know the name that they're referring to. Famously, and there's a whole section of the church that just hates it. But in Revelation, John uses Gematria, 666. 666, the sign of the beast, is famously, that is the number of the added up value of Nero's name. Okay? Matthew does it here, and he does it three times. You see, he, he's wanting to drive home the connections between Jesus and the legitimacy of Jesus as the anointed Davidic son. So he picks 14 people and puts that into the genealogy between Abraham and David. He omits a number of kings so that he has 14 generations from David to the deportation. And then there's like 500 years, so there's more. We don't know who's omitted, but we have an idea by looking at the, the, some of it in Luke. But he includes 14 names because his point is not to give you a list by list by list. He's, his point is to establish a genealogy. And he uses the term father of, which in Hebrew is totally accepted to simply mean ancestor. And he comes to 14. And there's three groups of 14. 14, 14, 14. What is that all about? It's the number of perfection doubled? No, quite simple. Again, Jesus is the Davidic heir. And so, if you take the name David, in Hebrew, has three letters. DVD. Okay, not digital video disc. That's David. DVD. The letter D corresponds to the number four. The letter V corresponds to the number six. Four plus six plus four. Guess what number that is? Fourteen. David. David, David, he infuses his, even his genealogy with the import that the one we've been looking for is here. But why do we need a Jewish gospel? Okay, he uses Jewish style, he covers Jewish themes, he uses Jewish perspective, and even in a few places, a Jewish hermeneutic. But why do we need a Jewish gospel? Well, I mean, let's face it. At least some believers are Jews. Sh sh shouldn't, shouldn't at least they have something that really speaks to them? Sure, but that's not the real reason we need a Jewish gospel. That we need a gospel that serves as kind of the hinge. You see, it's super easy for us to read back into all these pages, you know, the, the three quarters of our Bible that takes place before Matthew 1, 
and think, oh, that's old-timey stuff. It doesn't matter. It's easy for us to think that that was then and this is now and, and those people I have nothing in common with, so I don't need it. But Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus as the fulfillment of these things is tying together strands of a story because it's one story. And there's one people. And this stuff back here is your own family history. And I'm going to prove it real quick even though I have to leave this passage. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's, and, I, and I have to go into that because there's a very virulent stream of theology that says there's two peoples of God. Even though Paul takes great pains and says that the two men have been, have been made one. And at the end of chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the, the eyebrow-raising, gasp-inducing statement that he disciplines his body and keeps it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should find myself disqualified. That is a scary thing, and, you're, and, and, and we're foolish if we, just, if, we, if we just skip over that. The implications of what Paul says here are truly, they should stop you in your tracks. But then he, he realizes oh, that, it's, that it's track stopping. So he builds on it or he explains why it is that he would have a fear that there's a possibility that he himself could be disqualified. And that's where chapter 10 Verses 1 through, through 6 come in. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. In other words, they all experienced salvation. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Okay, I'm not going to exposit that passage, but I want to just look back. This is the epistle to the Corinthians, the first epistle to the Corinthians. Geography lesson. What basic country, continent was Corinth in? Greece, on what continent? Europe. Okay? He's writing to first century cosmopolitan Corinthians, the people at that church. So due to how the trade routes and how everybody works, it's, it's a, a mixture of peoples, but predominantly Europeans, Greeks to be specific. Okay? And he, because of the the bond we have in Christ, he calls them, what? Brothers. And then he pivots. Our, 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 first person plural, our fathers. They all passed under the cloud and through the sea. 
Who were the people who passed through the sea? Jews, a Semitic tribe leaving Egypt. 2,500 years before, a continent away, and then a, a very contained ethno-linguistic group. And Paul just referred to those people as our fathers. Why does he do that? How can he do that? There is absolutely no connection genetically to, to, from, from these first century Greeks to, to those 24th century B.C. Hebrews. I mean, until you go back further to Abraham, but, but because of something that's called adoption. It is real and it is legit. Because of adoption, per Romans 10 and 11, we have been grafted into the vine and so this story truly, really is our story. Our experience of Christ is read back into their experience. That they experienced Christ too. It says as much. Likewise, their experience is read into our situation because it's an example that we might experience the same kind of thing if we engage in the same type of behavior. We are one family, one story. That is why we need a Jewish gospel to remind us of our family roots. But more specifically, we need this genealogy right here because of what I just said about the legitimacy and the realness of adoption. And I'm going to say something that, that, that is so true. It may seem like an overstatement. If adoption is not really legitimate, then we are damned and the Messiah has not come. How can I say that? Matthew chapter 1. If genetics is everything, remember, we're expecting a Davidic king, right? A Davidic king. If genetics is everything, and both Matthew and Mark, I, I, I'll, I'll get to that, they, they, they talk about Joseph. That Davidic genealogy runs down to Joseph. What genetic relationship does Joseph have to Jesus? Come on, let's, someone say it. None. So the point he's trying to make is completely undermined if, in fact, adoption is not real. I, I need you to understand that I'm not just trying to wow you with a new insight about this genealogy. Because you have been adopted. You can have confidence in the cemented quality of your adoption as sons and daughters of God because in the same way, the 
the fact that Jesus was born of Mary, but yet the genealogy in both Matthew and Luke specify Joseph. And he is not genetically related to Joseph. He was adopted. And that cements the reality, and he is therefore in line for the throne. And just as sure as that, that's how sure your own adoption as sons and daughters of God is. But we need this genealogy right here. It's not just because Mark or Matthew wanted to make, uh, make the, 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 the cool point about David's name three times. It's not just that he wanted to say David and Abraham. And th though that is an important reminder of the faithfulness of God to those covenant promises to Abraham to bless all the nations in and through him and, and that kings would come from him. But it's, it's also the reminder of the promise to bring a Messiah through the line of David. And wow, but all the other names... We still need them. So there are some differences between this genealogy and Luke's. I mean, specifically, let's look at verse 16 here. It says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. First of all, I love how it distinct, it, Matthew's burden is to protect the virgin birth. Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. He breaks that Hebraic formula, so-and-so the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of, and then with Joseph, it's Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the genealogy is down to Joseph. And in the same way, you go to Luke chapter 3, where it begins Jesus' genealogy, and Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed. Again, Luke is wanting to reinforce the virgin birth. Being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of, the son of, the son of. So again, Joseph, both times, but Jacob is the listed as the father of Joseph and Matthew. Heli is listed as the father of Joseph and Luke. Ah! So it's caused some people, I am astounded and kind of disappointed in the number of scholars, good scholars, who will say, who will just parrot the same thing without really defense. Oh, this is, Luke is Mary's line. It doesn't say that. It says Joseph. To just think that that, just saying it establishes it is, is ridiculous. Talk about a rejection of sola scriptura. Wow. So what are we left with? Well, there's, there's a very plausible argument. Remember, Matthew, he omits a number of kings. I mean, we can establish that easily. He, his goal is, his goal is not a name-by-name -name genealogy. His goal is to establish that Jesus is in line for the Davidic throne, so that's why he wants the 14, so he can say David, David, David at every turn. So there are some who say with plausibility that, that what Matthew is here establishing is this is what the throne, uh, this, this is what the, 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 how the throne and the, uh, 
the reign would have been passed had the kingdom been enduring from the time of the deportation to now. That they weren't allowed to have a king, they were under the thumb of Greece and then Rome, but had they had been allowed to have a king, these would have been the guys who, who would have been on the throne. And these are legit people in the genealogy, but these would have been the guys on the throne. That's because, again, his burden is to establish king line. Now, Luke has an entirely different emphasis. His desire is to showcase the utter humanity of Christ. So he goes back to Adam. And, and so they would say that what Joseph, or, or what Luke is doing, is establishing this is the actual human line of descent. Not, not just picking and choosing the names along the way who serve the purpose of establishing kingly line. That's what they say. Possible. But it could also just be that it's two different forms of the same name. That Matthew calls Joseph's dad Jacob. Luke calls Joseph's dad Heli. Matthew himself He's introduced in Matthew as Matthew. Guess what the other books of the Bible introduce him as? Levi. Two different guys? I don't know. No, I, I know. It's the same guy. So, either option is plausible. But the genealogy itself, it's driving home a fact that Jesus comes into the world with a genealogy that's fully, truly human with all of its highs and lows. I mean, he's the only one to mention these ladies. There are five women mentioned. And with the exception of Mary, she's, she's the, and, and possibly Ruth, there's no, they're all kind of scandalous. I mean, think about it. Tamar, she, she pretended to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law so she could get a kid. Eesh. Rahab, I mean, she's, she ran a brothel. She was a Canaanite. Her great act of faith was, was giving shelter to the spies. That was enough to save her. Ruth was a Moabite, and we, we love talking about how, oh, she was a woman of character. Got it. But understand that Ruth takes place in a context, and the context is God's law said that no Moabite or descendant of a Moabite could ever enter the assembly. Talk about scandal. You know, you have your greatest king is like four generations removed from a Moabite? Bathsheba, man, she's not even mentioned by name. Uriah's wife. David had Solomon by, by Uriah's wife. Wow. That lets you know where they stand on that. And then Mary. Look at her. Woman of faith, wrote the Magnificat. Yeah, that's what we say because we're believers. What would, what would the peers of Mary have said? Oh, virgin birth. <laughs> Young, teenage, pregnant, unwed, scandalous. Questions of legitimacy abound. And 
Even these kings that are listed, oh my goodness, Manasseh, kings and chronicles make it clear he was the worst of the worst of the worst. So what's Matthew coming out of the gate saying by including these ladies? One, that women's place and presence is valued in the kingdom, but it's going to set the stage for the tone of Jesus' ministry. You see, everyone of that day thought that the Messiah would come from this prestigious, squeaky clean line. And here's Jesus coming on the scene, stepping on the scheme, and he is utterly, just, he pays no regard to their pretentious uh, demands for, for, he doesn't care about questions of of legitimacy and, and, and scandal. He accepts those who come to him, and he doesn't care about their past. All that matters is that Rahab repented. All that matters is that Bathsheba repents. All that matters is that Ruth turns to faith. All that matters, all that matters is how they come to the Lord. And that's gonna be the tenor throughout this entire gospel is that Jesus scandalizes his contemporaries by how he is willing to receive and accept anyone regardless of past pedigree. Simply when they come to him, clinging in desperate faith. So brothers and sisters, this gospel is awesome. It's big. It contains some of the most robust teaching that that we have in the New Testament from the mouth of Jesus. And this right out of the gate genealogy sets the tone. It establishes the Jewish connections and it helps orient us on the way. I'm excited, and I hope you are too, because this is the gospel of the Jews. It's the gospel of our past. It's the gospel of our covenant king, the Messiah, who has come. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for inspiring Matthew, otherwise known as Levi, to write it. Thank you for how you accept us regardless of our past pedigree. You are not unashamed or you are not ashamed to identify with the warts and blemishes of our human existence. You indeed, from your very pedigree, are a sympathetic high priest. Thank you. Grant that we, like so many, would come to you in faith that we would cling to you because you alone have the words of truth. It's in your name we pray, O Lord. Amen.